0: You're listening to ASHCAST, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Thursday, October 19th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted an event titled Regimes of Inequality, Politics and Health in Europe. Julia Lynch, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania, spoke about the politics of health inequalities in Europe. Quinton Main, Associate Professor of Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School, moderated. This event was part of the Ash Center's Comparative Democracy Seminar Series. Let's listen in.
1: Quinton Main, I'm an Associate Professor here at the Kennedy School. It's, uh, my pleasure to welcome Professor Julie Lynch here today to the Comparative Democracy Speaker Series. Um, this is because Julie's work over the years has focused squarely on this dance, as it were, between politics and policy and policy and politics. Uh, Julie is a professor of political science um, at the University of Pennsylvania, and her first book was about age orientation of social policy, and it focused on this uh, incredibly important question of how and why welfare states protect older and younger age groups differently. And um, one of the, the, the... finding to come out of her research is that patterns of partisan politics and competition and existing, pre-existing structures of social policy interact over time to produce mutually reinforcing constellations of elderly or uh, youth-oriented welfare states. And in her new book project, which she will be talking to us today about, focuses on the question of why have governments in so many rich democracies, frankly, failed to curb inequality and an inequity? Um, The post-war decades in Europe suggested that you really can have your cake and eat it. You can uh, can be an active participant in an increasingly internationalized form of market capitalism. And you can drive up the health, wealth, and well-being of different population uh, groups. But that doesn't seem to be as true now as it was in the past. So um, one of the questions that we'll be grappling with at today's session is, is it possible to tackle income inequality from within the bounds of a neoliberal form of capitalism, or is neoliberalism the problem itself? And can we really address the consequences of income inequality, or even income inequality itself, without challenging basic tenets of contemporary forms of neoliberal capitalism on both sides of the Atlantic? And stepping back even further, how much can we direct blame exclusively or mainly toward the current form of capitalism as opposed to the political coalitions and policy compacts of the past that formed in the post-war years? And in what ways did those past political battles and policy settlements that emerged from them unwittingly contribute to creating the heavy burdens and seemingly unbreakable binds that hamper good-faith efforts today to tackle inequality? So those words, I'll pass it over to Julie.
2: Great. I'm going to get up and, you know, wave my arms around and stuff because it's late in the afternoon and... We'll all benefit. Um, thank you so much. Can you write my book for me? <laughs> it all sounds so good when you say it. <laughs> um, so, what I'm doing today is I am going to present um, sort of some preliminary lessons from the book that I've been working on writing over the past year. Um, the book project really is about trying to explain this new normal of rising inequality. And if you're sitting in this room, you've probably seen this picture before. This is the top 1% income share uh, over time, from 1974 to roughly 2014. And um, to make a long story short, it's going up. Societies, these are primarily West European rich OECD countries. Inequality is rising. Top income shares are going up. If we look at post-tax income distribution, It's a little bit less dramatic, but even so, the sort of main story here is of an upward trend in income inequality. Now, one way to explain this is that, you know, there are bad neoliberals out there. (laughs) This sort of Marxism um, approach to the problem would say, look, you know, this is happening on purpose. This is happening because um, an accumulation and a concentration of, of capital is good for capitalists. But I think we have to um, take a step back before we dive into that inevitable conclusion and and just note that there are people, um, for example, Christine Lagarde speaking to Davos on the website of the World Economic Forum, no less, saying, Look, guys, this is not good. I've been telling you we should do something about income inequality and you're not listening to me. So the question that I'm trying to tackle in this book is why is it that inequality is so resilient even though there are well-intentioned people with power who are trying to reduce it? So this is the central question that I'm trying to get at. And I'm using the case of health to try to understand this. Now in the case of health, there's a very strong international consensus about what drives inequality in health and about what we ought to do about it within the sort of specialist community of health inequalities researchers. And that consensus is that inequalities in health are due primarily to socioeconomic inequalities. They're not due to differences in access to healthcare, which in fact only contributes to roughly 20 to 25 percent of variation in avoidable mortality. It's not just because people are living in poverty. Even when you go to high-income countries, um, people, are, people who have less money are less healthy. Um, but even middle-class people are less healthy than richer people. Even people who have been nominated for Oscar awards but who don't win them live less long and have less good health status than people who were nominated for Oscars and who win them. So there's a gradient. um, So it's not just about poverty. And the conclusion of the World Health Organization's Commission on the Social Determinants of Health in 2008 was that, in fact, social injustice is the problem. Social injustice is killing us on a grand scale. The solution to this problem of socioeconomically generated health inequalities is to redistribute. Redistribute power and redistribute wealth in society. So there's a very strong international consensus among the sort of health inequalities specialist research crowd concentrated in the WHO. People moving in and out of the WHO from international research communities and from, from governments. Um, and part of what I do in the book is I sort of track this flow of people and ideas Through international organizations like the WHO and the European Union's uh, Health Directorate. Um, But what I'm going to talk about today is what happens when this international consensus kind of trickles down to governments, to national governments in Europe. And by and large, national governments have taken on this international consensus. They have said, yes, we believe that health inequalities are a problem, we believe they're a problem that governments should do something about. We believe that they are caused by socioeconomic inequalities in society, and we believe that the solution is to redistribute. And they say this in national policy documents. And then they go on to not redistribute and not reduce health inequalities. Um, And here's just a picture of them not reducing health inequalities. All right. So social epidemiologists, by and large, will tell you that this is happening because of neoliberalism. Um, Again, I don't think that's the wrong story, but I think it's an incomplete story. So my approach begins by taking neoliberalism not as a unitary actor, In fact, I believe that neoliberalism is neither unitary, unitary, nor is it an actor. Neoliberalism isn't even really a thing. It's a collection of things. It's a collection of actors. It's a collection of ideas. It's a collection of policies. It's a collection of enforcement mechanisms. And we need to understand, in a much more disaggregated way, how the actual moving parts of neoliberalism work in order to understand why it exerts such a powerful influence on governments um, as they either try or don't try all that hard to reduce inequality. I also take as a starting point the idea that inequality is not this thing that's out there that we can sort of measure. That inequality is actually something that we make through politics. We decide what the problem of inequality is. And that means that we can decide to change what the problem of inequality is. And that process of changing what the problem is, is what I look at in this book. Um, Health inequalities and income inequalities are flip sides of the same coin. The story that I just told you about the international consensus about health inequalities tells us that they're closely tied together. Um, And so when we think about the politics of health inequalities, we also, of course, are going to be thinking about the politics of income and economic inequality, and vice versa. So what I do in the book is very inductive, primarily qualitative. I start by just trying to figure out what are people talking about when they talk about inequality. And specifically when they talk about health inequalities, what do they mean? And I and what kinds of policy solutions are they proposing to try to remedy this problem, however it is that they've constructed it? I do this at the level of WHO, particularly the European Regional Office, um, which is actually quite different from the world headquarters of the WHO in Geneva. They sort of take a different policy line. So I look at what's going on in the European regional office and in the EU context. And these two become sort of tightly interrelated over time. I also look at five country case studies. Um, The three main ones that I'll talk about are the UK, France, and Finland. And I do this through um, content analysis of government publications, of media, of parliamentary debates. Um, through a lot of interviews with health policy elites um, and through process tracing, trying to figure out what, what policies are people making, um, how, and why. So the, argument, the main argument that I'm going to make today is that inequality's resilience, the reason why it sticks around and becomes the new normal, despite people like Christine Lagarde having um, changes of heart, Um, is because of taboos. Now taboos are political topics and policy instruments that politicians have decided are off limits or too hot to touch. These are things that they want to avoid talking about in a neoliberal era. I want to say right at the outset that I think taboos have both a strategic and a normative dimension. That is, Politicians avoid talking about certain things because they don't want to be punished. They don't want to be punished by the electorate. They don't want to be published by the press. They don't want to be published by international uh, punished by international financial markets. Uh, is that a Freudian slip that I'm an academic who <laughs> elides publish and punish? Um, so there's a strategic element, but I want to point out that even with the strategic element, there's, there's a way in which politicians are acting in the shadow of neoliberalism rather than being directly coerced. There is also, in every one of the cases that I looked at, an element of true belief that policymakers are acting, and politicians are acting strategically, but they also believe it. They also fundamentally come to believe that there is no alternative to neoliberalism, and that is what makes many of these things taboos. So we're going to talk about we're going to talk more about what these taboos are in a second. Um, but before we do that, just to give you kind of the arc of the argument that I'm making, I argue that health inequalities arrive on the political agenda in these countries because politicians run up against a taboo and in response to this taboo, they try to reframe the issue of inequality so that they can talk about it without activating these taboos. So politicians, and these are mainly center-left politicians I'm talking about, they truly believe that there is no alternative, but at th- the same time, they're still center-left politicians, and they still kind of want more equality. Um, and so what they try to do is they try to get around these taboos. They try to find other ways of doing the thing that center-left politicians do, which <laughs> is to try to create more equitable societies. And they do that by raising the issue of health inequalities, or that's one of the ways that they do it. However, when they reframe inequality in terms of health in order to get around these taboos, they actually make the problem harder to solve. So this is bad news. For all of us, we have the taboo, we have a reframing, and then we have no reduction in inequality. All right, I'm just going to flag right here that I'm not explaining variation. I don't have a dependent variable that varies. I have a dependent variable that doesn't vary. I have a common outcome, which is this highly resilient inequality. And I argue that this is driven by processes that are analogous in different kinds of countries, but they're not identical. And the reason they're not identical is that the taboos differ across countries. So these ta- the process <laughs> of generating a taboo and generating this sort of shift in framing of inequality um, occurs in all of the countries that I look at, but it occurs in different ways. Um, and these processes differ in ways that are different, but they're also predictable, across welfare regimes. So who would have thunk it? Esping Anderson, God bless him, is still relevant. His three worlds of welfare capitalism still tell us an awful lot about what's going on with inequality today, despite the fact that sort of neoliberalism happened after um, his seminal contribution. Okay, so this leads me to my second question, which is why do the taboos differ across countries? I've told you that these taboos are really important in generating this common outcome, Um, but why do they differ across countries? Why isn't it just the same thing happening, which is kind of what most of the literature on neoliberalism would suggest, that it's this massive exogenous force that sort of causes um, political systems to converge in order to create convergent outcomes. I argue that the shape of post-war welfare regimes interacts with specific aspects of neoliberalism to create specific taboos which then result in reconstituted regimes of inequality. But I'm going to get to that later. So here's the plan. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you just a little bit more about the international health inequalities um, consensus. By the way, for those of you who are used to thinking of me as a historical institutionalist, this HI abbreviation could be confusing <laughs> in this context. It means health inequalities, not historical institutionalism. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Then I'm going to try to answer this first question about resilient inequality by using the example of the UK. And then, if I have time, I'm going to try to answer this second question about why taboos vary. Um, and finally, I'll conclude with some implications. Okay, so how big are health inequalities? Um, well, the problem with health inequalities is you can measure them in a million different ways, a million different outcomes, so the answer is we don't really know. But this is not a bad, this is not a bad way of thinking about it. Um, Jason Beckfield, who's in sociology here, um, <coughs> provided me with, with these numbers. Um, this is showing that in a country like, say, Finland, If you control for the age, gender, marital status, education, or unemployment, and then you look at the impact of the income quartile that someone is in, whether they're in the bottom income quartile or the top income quartile, you are about twice as likely, controlling for all that other stuff, you are about twice as likely to report being in poor health if you're in the bottom income quartile, than if you're in the top income quartile. This goes up to four times as likely for Sweden. And Spain looks pretty good on most health inequality measures, only about a 1.5 gap. So you're only 150% <laughs> more likely to be in bad health if you're poor in Spain. Um, So basically, on average, we're looking about health being, you know, twice as good for people who are rich than for people who are poor. All right. What does the international health inequalities consensus tell us about this? Well, the first thing to know, I'm actually going to start with the farthest downstream part, is that inequalities in health are defined in the international consensus as socioeconomic or class inequalities. Um, unlike in the US, where we tend to think about health inequalities in more racialized terms, and in fact, we don't even use the word inequality, we tend to use the term disparity instead. Um, here, the definition is really primarily about socioeconomic groups. Well, what causes these differences? Well, I've already told you that healthcare isn't the issue, and I'm just going to ask you to believe that, because um, that's not what I'm here to talk about today. Um, the dominant story here is about social determinants of health. These are upstream causes of ill health that are related not to whether a person has access to health care, but they're related to the conditions in which they live and work. Whether their housing is clean and safe, whether their neighborhoods have undue levels of atmospheric pollution, etc. But then we have to take one more step backward and think about Well, why is it that some people live in worse housing or why is it that some people live in neighborhoods with more particulate matter in the air. And the answer is that people have fundamental differences in the resources and in the power that they control, which enables them to live either more healthy or less healthy lifestyles. Um, This is a sort of vast oversimplification. But what I want to point to you, this graphic actually comes from a Scottish uh, health inequalities policy document. I'm sorry, I seem to have lost the source down here. But this idea that fundamental inequalities in in resources and in power are what is at the (laughs) bottom, they're the bottom turtle, when we think about health inequalities, is a really important element of the international consensus. This drives the key policy recommendations. So because we think about the social determinants of health as being multiple, we can't just work on the health sector If we want to reduce inequalities in health, we also have to work across multiple other sectors, whether it's housing or transportation or education or food and agriculture policy. Because health inequalities follow a gradient and are not just about poor people being in worse health, but actually operate stepwise across the entire gradient, we also don't want to just target stuff at the poor. We want to, if we want to produce the greatest gains in population health, we want to target things to the whole income distribution, um, but maybe do, so that's the universalism part, but maybe do a little bit more targeting um, for people who might need a little extra help. Um, And finally, we need to redistribute. Inequities in health cannot be reduced without addressing inequities in the distribution of power, money, and resources. This is out of the horse's mouth. Again, it's uh, the European regional office of the WHO, which is now like best friends with DG Sanko. So this all sounds really, really radical, but it's incredible the extent to which it's, it's been mainstreamed as a vocabulary for talking about inequality. All right, well, what happens in the UK? The UK, in many ways, is a most likely case. It's a most likely case for the adoption of key policy recommendations coming out of the international health inequalities consensus, partly because the British invented it. So the inter- international HI consensus comes out of the British discourse about this, dating back to, to even prior to the Black Report in nineteen. 19- So there's a very close match between the domestic policy frame and the international policy frame that's coming at them from the WHO. And they don't really care about what the EU says, but they do care about what the WHO says. And they use that language, and they reproduce it in their reports. So there's a very close match. And you would think that if anybody's going to pick up the policy recommendations coming out of this approach, it's going to be the British, because they invented it it's also a most likely case for success, for reframing to actually produce positive effects on inequality. And this is because the British took very seriously the job of reducing health inequalities. They have the longest, broadest, most sustained policy effort in the area of health inequalities of probably any country in the world. Um, But it still didn't work. So What are the British experts telling the government to do? Labor comes into office, and they've decided that they're going to make this their signature policy um, endeavor. And they reach out to a bunch of experts, and they say, what should we do? And the experts are um, of one voice. The experts say, you need to start taxing rich people, and you need to redistribute. Atchison, who writes what is actually (laughs) a very mild-mannered report and hands it to the Labor government in 1997. He says, reduce income inequalities and improve the living standards of poor households. He knows that they're really only going to improve living standards of poor households. But he says, anyway, you've got to reduce income inequality. This is what it's about. Well, what does Labor do? They've got these reports. They've got all this advice coming at them. Um, They do a bunch of multi-sectoral interventions. They've got that part down. They do area-based initiatives through health action zones where there are all kinds of initiatives going on within particular areas to try to reduce health inequalities across a variety of sectors. They have interventions across the life course, which is another thing that the WHO loves. They do early childhood interventions. They also use the National Health Service, of course, Um, And they try to sort of repurpose the National Health Service to to promote the goal of reducing health inequalities despite the fact that they understand that health care is not the main way to reduce health inequalities. Um, And they engage in a massive effort uh, of cross-sectoral coordination called joined-up government. What's fascinating about this is that they tried to do this in the 1970s with social services, and it failed miserably. It was an just a disaster. And they all knew this, and yet they decided to do this again. The other thing that labor does is they put a very, very heavy emphasis on poverty. Labor really did reduce poverty. They reduced poverty um, through a variety of of mechanisms, including very prominently through tax credits um, to people with children, um, through an increase in benefits for the elderly. Um, through a series of new deals designed to get people back to work, and also through the introduction of a minimum wage that was very, very low. Probably didn't do much to move people out of poverty, but it helped a little bit. So there's this big emphasis on poverty. What does labor not do? Labor does not reduce income inequality. So this period here between the two blue bars is the labor period. And And... Labor politicians really don't like it when I say this. They say, but we did reduce inequality. And I look at that, and I just have to tell you, that's not what it looks like to me. What it looks like is that they arrested the trend of very rapidly increasing income inequality, which occurred under the the Thatcher government, but which had already started to slow under Major. So, the big thing that labor doesn't do is they don't reduce inequality. And they particularly don't tax top, top income shares. Well, they did reduce poverty. They didn't reduce income inequality. Um, they also didn't reduce health inequalities. <coughs> there was almost no improvement in any of the health inequalities targets that the government set for itself between 1999 and 2011. Um, there was one minor exception, which I can talk about if you like. Um, Infant mortality did decline in the spearhead areas, which were the focus of very, very heavy concentrated attention. And what this says to me is that actually, when you do huge amounts of things to improve the lives of people who um, need to have a huge amount of things in their lives changed in order to make them better, you can actually move the needle. So that's kind of cool. But in fact, In most specific conditions and in most populations uh, health inequalities um, did not improve. The best case scenario I think is that we can say that it could have been worse. That given the extent to which income inequality had grown and continued to increase, particularly top incomes growth, um, you know, maybe this stuff actually did work in the sense that health inequalities didn't get as much worse as we would have expected them to. But that's about the best that we can say. So what went wrong? Why is it that labor didn't take its own policy advice? And why didn't they succeed in reducing either health inequalities or the underlying economic inequalities, despite the fact that they clearly wanted to? (laughs) I'm going to take you through this path, I'm going to show you the taboo, I'm going to show you the reframing of health, of inequalities in terms of health, and I'm going to show you how this shifts the Overton window. The Overton window is the range of policy options that seems reasonable or feasible in response to a particular policy problem. I'm going to argue that reframing shifted the Overton window in a way that made it harder to reduce inequality. All right, so what's the taboo? I've been talking a lot about taboos. The taboo in the UK is redistribution. And in fact, they're very, very clear about it. They call it the R word. After 1985, labor policy leaders within the party said, thou shalt not use the R word. This is from 2002. Remember, labor comes into government in 1997 and has been running for office since basically <coughs> 1979. Um, so this article in The Guardian is from 2002. Newsflash: Blair calls for wealth redistribution. Speaking at an East London school, it was one of the first times the prime minister has used the word redistribute unprompted. It was previously a taboo expression in new labor. So this just sort of goes to show the extent to which very explicitly there's actually a taboo against talking about redistribution. Um, Again, they do this, policymakers I talked to were very clear, very articulate about what the problem was. The problem was that they feared voters, they feared the press, and they feared the banking community. They feared getting clobbered for being bad economic managers if they talked about redistribution, but they also believed that opportunity was the way forward. They believed that redistribution was not something that labor voters wanted and that it wasn't something that was going to um, produce a better society. They believed that there was no alternative to the neoliberal policy agenda that had been put forth under Thatcher. Which is not to say that they were just as bad. They weren't. But at a fundamental level, in policy area after policy area, we can see that the same sort of um, allowing the market to unleash positive forces was was what they believed. So there's this taboo. But labor really still wants to be for equity. Generally, politicians don't like to talk too much about inequality, but no one wants to be for inequalities either. Um, the labor government didn't want to explicitly address income inequality. They would never have framed what they were doing in terms of reducing the gap between the rich and the poor. That would be political suicide. These are just some, some quotes from some of the people who I interviewed. So despite this taboo, new labor really wants to be for Equity and for equality, so they try to find a way around the taboo, um, and they reframe and they reframe in terms of health. So this is <laughs> actually one of the few quantitative slides that you will see in this <laughs> presentation. Um, the orange line is mentions of redistribution in the Hansard database. So these are basically parliamentary interventions where politicians are talking about taxing the rich and redistributing it um, to to the worse off. Uh, The blue line is health inequalities, the phrase health inequalities. Um, And this really takes off just at a time when um, the discussion of redistribution, particularly taxing top incomes and redistributing, is going down in parliamentary debates. And this is excluding Scotland, so this sort of gets rid of the Scotland problem. So why did they choose the health frame, of all things? Well, I should point out that it's not the only frame that they chose. I mean, they were also doing a lot of other sort of technocratic um, opportunity-based ideas, social investment-based ideas. Um, But one of the main reasons they chose the health frame is it was available. So in 1980 there had been this landmark report that had been requested by a labor government to investigate why it was that poor people were still in worse health in Britain despite the fact that They had equal access to health care. This landed on the desk of uh, of the new incoming conservative government, where it was buried. Um, It was released over a bank holiday. They only printed something like 100 copies. And this turned out to be a horrible gaffe, because what labor learned from this is that health inequalities was a great issue. That if you could show that the Tories were bad on health inequalities, that was a great way of beating them over the head. Um, so this frame is already out there because of the Black Report. It's also really good strategy, right? The way that we kicked the Tories was to say that they were literally killing people. Labor absolutely loved the early health inequalities research work because it said that you are child killers. Your trickle-down isn't working. So they knew that the Tories were weak on this. Um, but it also fits Labor's social investment paradigm. And I think there's a reason why so many people are talking about health now, too, Right? This is a very nice fit with the way that we're thinking about the world in a sort of post-redistributive era. Finally, the people I talked to were pretty convinced that health inequalities, despite the fact that there was this really radical language around health inequalities at the level of the WHO and even the EU, they found it to be non-threatening. They thought it was zero-sum. They, Labor Party leaders, are keen to talk about health inequalities, providing they don't have to talk about income and wealth inequalities. And here is where the rubber hits the road, because they wanted to talk about health inequalities as a way to not talk about income inequalities, but they sort of conveniently forgot that the whole idea of health inequalities is wrapped up in the idea of income inequalities. So this was probably, in retrospect, not such a great idea. So, when they reframe in terms of health, it shifts the Overton window around inequality. What it does is it takes an issue that is politically very, very unappealing. Redistribution. Income inequality. And tries to replace it with a political issue that is much more appealing. Health inequalities. Who could be against making everybody healthier? But, At the same time, the taboo against discussing redistribution takes all of the tools of economic management that policymakers actually know how to wield and can do from one ministry and can do essentially overnight if they want to. It takes all of those tools and puts them off the table and replaces them with a set of untested, incredibly difficult to use policy levers. And I'm not going to go into detail here, but if you're interested, I have a publication um, from last year in the Journal of Public Health. Basically, the health inequalities policy recommendations are a complete nightmare. You have to do cross-sectoral collaboration across multiple departments. You have to have multi-level collaboration between national level and sub-national level entities that are primarily responsible for doing things like delivering social services. You are generally asking those local level entities to do this without giving them any additional resources. It's an absolute nightmare. And if you succeed, it's going to take 60 years for you to see results. Because you're intervening on early childhood, and you want to look and see what mortality looks like at the end of the day. So this is a terrible, terrible, terrible reframing. It it almost couldn't have been worse. So here's the story that I've told so far. We've got a political taboo, which in the case of the UK is redistribution. We've got an alternative available inequality frame, which is this international health inequalities consensus, which is particularly available in the UK. Inequality is reframed in order to get around this taboo. This shifts the Overton window and fails to reduce inequality. Okay, so now I get to question two. How am I doing on time? Like a good
1: five, five, ten minutes.
2: Okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get it done. So where do these different taboos come from? Like redistribution isn't the taboo everywhere. You talk to French socialists, they are perfectly happy to talk about redistribution. They will do it all day long. There are other things that they're not so keen to talk about and that they, in fact, use health inequalities as a way of avoiding talking. So I want us to think about welfare regimes, the post war welfare regimes, so the sort of sets of policies and political mechanisms that were put into place starting in the early 1950s, as regimes of inequality. They are regimes for controlling inequality, they are ways of maintaining the primacy of politics, in Sherry Berman's lovely phrase. Um, which she actually stole, I think, from the Social Democrats, so she didn't invent it. Um, but it's a really nice phrase anyway. Um, what is it? How is it that we are able, as a society, to keep market-generated inequalities within acceptable bounds? And what we know about welfare regimes um, in the rich industrialized democracies is that they're not the same everywhere. They look different. There are different flavors of them. Um, which create different kinds of stratification and which have different acceptable bounds and which use different mechanisms for for producing those acceptable bounds of inequality. The point that I want to make about welfare regimes is that if you take the central mechanism for containing inequality in a welfare regime, in in one of these post-war welfare regimes, whether it's the liberal or the social democratic or the conservative corporatist, and you bring neoliberalism into play, particularly threatening aspects of neoliberalism for that system, you're going to generate a big, ugly, red blister, a sticking point that policymakers are going to try to avoid. This is where these political taboos come from. So we've seen that in the UK, which I think is actually a pretty good representative of the liberal world in this sense. The sticking point is redistribution. The reason why is that the main mechanism for controlling inequality in a liberal welfare regime is in fact not the welfare state. The welfare state is kind of limited. The main mechanism is having alternation in office. When you have a labor-based party that comes into office periodically and taxes and redistributes. When neoliberalism comes along in the UK, one of the most threatening aspects of it is the ideational hegemony. It it is the extent to which new labor bought it. And so when you combine this key mechanism, which is alternation in government, with the the key threat from neoliberalism, which in the case of the UK is ideational hegemony, which means that you don't get alternation of ideas in government when you get alternation of parties, you get this taboo around redistribution. The French process looks different, and I'm not going to walk you through it in anywhere near the same detail, but I just want to point out that in conservative corporatist welfare states more generally, a key mechanism for controlling inequality is compensating the losers through social, what General Levy has called the social anesthesia state. You you buy people off. Um, The key challenge from neoliberalism is fiscal constraints. Often arriving in the form of the EU. And in fact, what we see is that the French socialists finally adopt the uh, socioeconomic inequalities in health framing. They had a different, they had their own frame before, but they finally adopt this frame when the when they have to sign on to the European Fiscal Compact, <laughs> which really, really constrains spending in a way that it had only been kind of constrained before. Um, The finished process, again, looks a little different, but again, I think it is sort of representative of what happens in the social democratic welfare world, where regulation of markets and taxation of capital are really the key mechanisms for keeping inequality under control. What's very threatening in these small states that are exposed to world markets is EU market (laughs) (laughs) rules. And exposure to capital markets imposes constraints on their ability to use regulation of internal markets and taxation of capital. And this is exactly what we see happening in Finland. Um, In 1992, Finland has a major economic crisis. And suddenly, both the center left and the center right decide that it's the logic of economic necessity. We can't do anything to piss off capital markets. Um, So we can't do anything at all. They can no longer tax. And income inequality goes through the roof. Um, but also, they joined the EU in 1995, and they can no longer regulate the risk factors that create health inequalities, which had always been the Finnish strategy for dealing with this in the past, going all the way back to the mid-1970s. So, I'm going to conclude now. Um, the politics of inequality in rich democracies is, I think, really closely related in a way that I've only just scratched the surface of. It's closely related to these post-war strategies for containing markets. Um, After 1990, which we can sort of date as as the serious onset of neoliberalism in Europe, um, these mechanisms for controlling inequality that are really key, combined with instantiations of neoliberalism that are different in every country, to produce distinctive sticking points, taboos, and uh, eventually a shifting in the Overton So the rise of health inequalities as a policy problem, I think, is closely tied to politicians' desire to get around some of these taboos. Um, But it results in a shift in the kinds of policies that are viewed as available for policymakers. So why do I use the word regimes? I think regimes are actually really important. There's a way in which the stuff is all bundled together that makes it much harder to solve the problem. Um, Issues, health inequalities, income inequalities are bundled together. Tools are bundled. Policy tools are bundled together within regimes. And that means that when you try to change the subject or try to change your approach in order to deal with inequality in a new way, you end up tending to kind of recreate the same patterns that you followed before. Um, And so I think ultimately inequality is resilient not because there are bad guys out there or because, um, you know, politicians have ill will and just don't want to do anything about the problem or even necessarily because they're choosing the wrong policies to deal with specific instantiations of inequality but in fact because of kind of a, a deeper institutional sociology that underlies the politics of inequality. Um, this interde- interdependence of parts, which makes it difficult to pull them, pull them apart. Um, the tendency to isomorphism, in in sociological institutionalism, you often see sort of a tendency to recreate institutions in the form that they've always taken in the past in response to new policy problems, and I think we can see that coming through pretty clearly here. Um, And finally, the the importance of the logic of appropriateness. This is about ideas at the end of the day. This is about what people think it's okay to do and not okay to do in response to inequality. (coughs) So you want to reduce inequality? I've given you a pretty dismal dismal story. Um, Maybe you could try a different frame. You know, maybe the health inequalities frame is a really bad frame as I've suggested, but maybe there's a better one out there. Maybe maybe we could do this through education. My friends who work in L- education policy tell me that it's not working a whole lot better there, though. So I'm not sure that trying a different frame is the answer. Um, we could just be like Norway. We could pump money out of the ground and say, um, we don't care what financial markets think, and, oh, by the way, we're not going to join your market anyway. Um, but not all of us... In the EU. What's that?
3: You're saying Norway is not...
2: Correct, okay. yeah. So we could, tr- we could try to pull a Norway. Um, Norway, in fact, is the only country in Europe that has a, a health inequalities national strategy that says, thou shalt reduce income inequality in order to reduce health inequalities. Um, it's this magical thing. And then they get voted out of office. So I'm not sure that the Norwegian strategy is going to work for us either. I think at the end of the day, we just have to bite the bullet. No, if we want to reduce income inequality, we just have to reduce income inequality. <laughs> we have to use the tools that we have and that work in order to do what it is that we want to do. And if we don't want to reduce income inequality, then don't. But if we want to, then don't. Let's not mess around with health inequalities. Let's just cut to the chase.
1: Great. Thank you so much. I thought I'd start with a question, actually. Uh oh. Um, so, would you read uh, Corbyn and Sanders in the liberal world as the beginning of batting the bullet? So it's one thing to say third way left politics when trying to win office they wouldn't even go there, but have we turned a corner? Were in the process of campaigning that might be reflective of a new way of governing? If they were to win elections
2: yeah so this is something I've been thinking a lot about um, sort of first in the context of post 2008 crisis you know as the politics around inequality start to look kind of different Mm -hmm. and then with the rising um, wave of populism both on the left and the right um, I have a sense that (coughs) that what I've just presented to you is more of a description of how we got to be where we are right now mm-hmm. than it is a description of what's going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. I think that the pressures on politicians of the center left to, um, to do things differently are very strong. I think we won't really know what they're going to do until they get into office. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that, that may happen. I think it's going to happen sooner with Corbyn than with Bernie <laughs> Sanders. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, but I I think it's possible that this is the start of this, the complete collapse of the center left in Europe and realizing that they really have to try to do things differently.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Questions then
4: from the floor? Yeah. yeah. Marcus. Uh, was oh, sorry. Thank you very much uh, for this really interesting presentation. I was wondering as far as like what uh, politicians are afraid of, and you listed voters, the media, I think those were the, the main ones, right?
2: Financial markets.
4: Financial markets, right, yeah. yeah. So, and I was thinking, because I've seen these uh, opinion polls where they ask citizens, I think, in the US and in Europe, uh, what they think about redistribution, and it seems like they're increasingly positive.
1: Yeah.
4: Right, and, and even in the United States. I'm from Sweden myself, so, for me, it's not so surprising. But uh, even in Sweden, we have a problem of talking about inequality in politics. So I was thinking, like, it, are they actually afraid of voters or is it more the media that is <laughs> neoliberal?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the Thank really you. strange things about, about the UK experience in particular is, although you see it in France too, actually, um, you know, they're really sure that they know what their voters want. And they're really quite sure that their voters don't want redistribution, and yet public opinion poll after public opinion poll says we want redistribution. So, so there's this idea that you know, with with the growing affluence of the middle class, that you can't um, you can't tax them. That they don't. There's this, this very they've internalized the Meltzer-Richards model. You know, they've sort of decided now that the middle classes are richer than they used to be. that they don't want taxation anymore. Um, And yet there's not really a lot of evidence that that's true. Um, Or, let me put it a different way, there's a lot of evidence that that might not be true. There's also some evidence from surveys and from voting behavior that it is true. That certain segments of the middle class really don't want more taxes. Um, So I, I think politicians are getting a mixed message And they're interpreting it in the way that is most convenient for them, given their a priori beliefs.
5: Hi, thank you. As I find your presentation both uh, terrifying and incredibly interesting in terms of analysis, so so thanks. Um, I wanted to ask about income and wealth. Um, So both in terms of if there's a distinction between the two in the way they determine health inequalities and also in terms of that challenge and that taboo, if there's a bigger challenge of redistribution in terms of wealth down in terms of income, so what the relation is between those two.
2: Yeah, so there's not a huge amount of data on the impact of wealth on health. Um, there's just less data on wealth generally, as I'm sure you know. Um, the the work that I've seen suggests that wealth has an absolutely parallel impact on health, um, and... Certainly some of my work on, on mortgage foreclosure, which is you know housing is the main form of wealth for many Americans, um, would suggest that that's the case. Um, but, but we don't have nearly as much data on that problem as we do on the problem of, of income inequality. Um, in terms of whether it's easier to, redis- to talk about redistributing wealth than to talk about redistributing income, I think certain kinds of wealth are easier to talk about redistributing. Um, I I gather that that many Brits are just fine with the idea of, for example, taking away property from the landed class. Um, But but confiscating um, gains from you know capital gains is usually less less politically palatable. So I think it depends on what kind of wealth you're talking.
3: Okay. Um, I was struck by the fact that one of your earlier charts um, show, um, show the range among European countries in terms of HI uh, and uh, I studied it for a few seconds and I was amazed to see that the four Scandinavian countries, I mean I'm I tend toward the "be like Norway" uh, approach, but for the four Scandinavian countries in that chart to all be on the half, the worse half of the uh, of that chart, I found very puzzling. Um, and I, if I can slip in a second question, uh, I've never quite, just as I've never quite understood why, in my native. American nation, there has long been this taboo against socialism, I don't, could you explain to me why the British have this taboo against the R word, redistribution? Thank you.
2: Those are two very small questions. (laughs) Um, Let me start with the first tiny little question. Um, you, are, you are not the first to observe with a great deal of surprise that the Scandinavian countries tend to do a lot worse on health equity than people expect and than people think they should. There are a number of different explanations for this. Um, one has to do with the fact that health is generally much better um, overall. So the average level of health is higher in the Scandinavian countries even than in other countries in Europe. Mm. Um, and what that means is that small differences look large relatively. Um, so you, so uh, you know, measure, this sort of gets in the, into the, deep into the weeds of how you measure health inequalities. But so part of it is a measurement issue. Um, but part of it is also that in Scandinavian countries, Um, because the income distribution and the distribution of opportunities is so much more equal than it is in many other places, the people who are left at the bottom um, tend to have a combination of problems that is much more likely to to be associated with illness, I think. So I think that's kind of the main story there. Um, In terms of why redistribution is a taboo in Britain. Um, it wasn't always, right? This is new. This was a very explicit political move. This happened um, not by accident. This happened because Labor Poli- Party politicians got together. They had been clobbered in the 1983 elections for being the loony left. and they decided that the best way forward for the Labor Party was to recognize that their old constituency of working-class people no longer existed and that what they wanted to do was appeal to the middle class and that they felt that redistribution was threatening to the middle classes because the middle classes were more likely to be paying taxes.
3: So
2: you're blaming it on Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, I guess. Well, I mean, I don't... Responding to what they saw as the developments in the electorate in a way that was that was very rational and that made a lot of sense to them. So I, I don't I don't know if I want to say blame. Um, I attribute it to them.
3: Thanks, um, like Adam, uh, I'm from the UK. This was really interesting. Um, I kind of have a question taking one step even further back. In oh, goody. Twi- <laughs> You talked a bit about um, the constraints on inequality coming from um, the political alternation in the UK, um, and that made me very depressed. Um, And I'm wondering whether the link between the kind of post-war welfare system and that as the way in which we control inequality in the UK and the assumption there that there is only one wing of the political system that cares at all about inequality um, and that it will only ever get better under one... Political outcome is that fixed or is that changeable?
2: I think it's quite changeable. So I think if you look at the if you look at the history of British conservatism, um, you know certainly there's sort of a strain of one nation Toryism under which um, you know radical inequality is unacceptable. Um, so that's that's in the political culture, um, and even in the post-war period, the sort of butskalist period. You know the period immediately after the war where you had. Um, <laughs> alternation in government but where policies remained quite fixed because they were really trying to build policies at that point. Um, th- you know, that is an example of a period when um, when alternation again didn't produce policy change, but it didn't produce policy change in the direction that, that in fact was supportive of reducing inequality rather than increasing inequality. So I don't I don't think that this is I don't think that this is fixed in stone.
6: Thank you for that excellent talk. Uh, The causation of this taboo based on your talk is because neoliberalism. And so people don't want to talk about redistribution. But how deeply does neoliberalism is believed and accepted among European countries differ? So in the cases you are studying Like France, my understanding is that neoliberalism is not as deeply ingrained. Then do you find the different framing or different degrees of strategy or different strategy to deal with this uh, redistribution?
2: Yeah, so I I think sort of neoliberalism taken as a whole is again, not very helpful to us here. Mm-hmm. So what we see is that in the UK, they take very seriously the idea that taxing high incomes is just off the table. And I think both the left and the right absolutely, deeply in their core of their being believe this. And I wasn't able to show you that today, but, but I have good reasons for believing this. If you go to France, they're fine with redistribution. And they're even sort of OK with taxing high incomes. But what they really, what, what sort of the mainstream of the Socialist Party and the mainstream center right completely agree on is that France must remain in the European Union. And France must maintain fiscal discipline in order to do that. So ma- remaining in Europe. And maintaining fiscal discipline are the same thing, and they absolutely believe it. Um, partly this is you know it has to do with who's being recruited into government. There are a lot more economists than there used to be. And you know, they really believe this stuff. Right? So as more and more economists enter government um, in places like France, where previously they were not particularly important in government. I think um, the, the sort of core of ideas really does start to change in Finland too. You know People like to think of of the Scandinavian countries as being sort of outliers where neoliberalism doesn 't work i 'm sorry if you look at, at Denmark, Finland, or Sweden over the last twenty years, that just doesn 't wash uh, The center left in these countries are deeply neoliberal. <laughs> Um, they really believe in freeing up markets in a way that is, is utterly um, goes against the welfare states that they built during, during the immediate post-war period. Um, so I do think that neoliberalism has penetrated very deeply, but I think it's penetrated, different parts of it have penetrated in different parts of Europe.
6: Alex? Elsewhere, um, to,
3: um, If the if if the center left is neoliberal, why are you calling it center left? <laughs> what does it mean to be to be, to, be uh, to keep that label? It seems to me you could
4: you could your analysis,
3: um, which I share, you know, and I'm also happy to. Embrace any theory which sees economists as the root of much of the evil. Um, <laughs> no. But 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 the analysis suggests that that that, that those categories uh, have been eclipsed. Well, I think. I mean, the French Socialist Party, may it rest in peace. Um, you know, is uh, it is no longer w- w- right, and, and yeah. it has long since stopped being socialist.
2: Right. No, I think these the the you know, the distinction between the center-left and center-right in Europe really started to disappear around 1990. um, As parties, they didn't converge there, they converged there, (laughs) right? So what does it mean now to be center-left? Well, the reason I continue to use that label is that in contrast to the policymakers on the center-right, people in the center-left continue to Talk about wanting a more equitable society as a goal in a way that policymakers on the center right just don't. So I think there still is a difference. Whether that difference is actually meaningful, um, whether, uh, you know, in the absence of being willing to adopt the policies that would lead them towards their stated ends, you know, I leave that to you to decide. Oh,
1: the mic's just going to come. Just on your uh, last comment, now, as you can tell, I'm also um, from the UK. Um, To what extent, in terms of having having the main kind of party's goal um, as having a more equitable society, to what extent does that apply in the UK today? Because I feel like a lot of the stuff being spewed out to the public by the Conservatives is making work work for the working class people, etc., etc., which is very Different message to what, what conservative bunnies
2: Yeah, I think
1: like.
2: the rise of populism and I think you know the British Conservative Party has become a populist right party at this point, um, I- at least in its rhetoric, um, that has changed the game, right because populist <coughs> parties talk about having I don't know that they use the word equity so much. But they too, they do talk about having a society that's better for the little guy. Um, again, I think the rhetoric and the policy are are quite divorced. Um, but at least in in rhetorical terms, I think actually, you know, now we are starting to see a reconvergence on where the center left might have been in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, but it's purely in terms of rhetoric, and there's, I think no policy substance underneath, as far as I can tell.
5: Thank you for your presentation. I will also look into the diagram that that you mentioned, and and, and what I just saw was that all the countries on the left are uh, Bismarck healthcare system countries, and to the right are either beverage or mixed systems. So, having in mind that Bismarck system is designed to be resilient to political changes, whereas leverage like in the UK uh, is very sensitive to political changes, does that have any um, effect on your thoughts on how to approach health inequalities? And also, just another thing, as like Bismarck apparently has better health outcomes, and whichever these are to use uh, to measure health inequalities, anyway, they have, you know, better, better, better health outcomes. So I would say that these approaches are differ, and I'm sure that you thought on, you know, how to, how to do it. So if you can share some of your thoughts with us. Thank you.
2: Um, Yeah, so... I hope, that, I hope that what I'm about to say doesn't sound unduly dismissive. And I'm trying to think about whether I may be dismissing something important there. So I thank you for this question. Um, so, Bismarckian <laughs> systems um, are geographically co located, right? So, part of what we're looking at is essentially a northern and western Europe versus a more southern and, and central Europe split, you know, more or less, right? Um, and one of the things um, that, sh- so there are two things that essentially contribute to keeping health inequalities smaller, um, e- the further south you go. Um, one is the delayed onset of female smoking. Um, and the other is a diet that's higher uh, in fruits and vegetables and fish. So I think what I'm trying to get at here <laughs> Is that I'm not sure how important the healthcare systems are. Um, I think the the things that drive differences in population health um, are are linked to healthcare systems um, only in sort of at the margins. Bismarckian systems, by and large, um, have higher cost-related barriers to accessing health care. So to the extent that you think healthcare matters um, for health, lower income people should actually be doing worse in Bismarckian <laughs> systems than they are in NHS or mixed systems. So it's really hard for me to find a story to tell about Bismarckian healthcare systems um, driving smaller health inequalities. And I may have just missed it, um, but but it doesn't come to me.
1: Great, and we're spot on time. Well, let's thank Julie for a wonderful talk. And feel free to to stay around and chat.
0: You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.